We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were yet on, yet they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, so we're continuing our uh, journey through Romans, and we're to uh, chapter 9 now. And chapters 9, 10, and 11 are the start of kind of a long um, diatribe that Paul is going through, addressing some specific concerns and questions that Israelites and blood-born Jews would have against the, the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus. And so this is kind of just entering into the very beginning of this long conversation we're going to be in for the next few weeks um, and there's a lot of really amazing things that, that Paul points out here, um, but there's a lot of spending time in the Old Testament. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Old Testament today. I hope you're excited about that. It's amazing what we find out about the Lord uh, there. So my daughter Ellie is just over two years old now, and she's been learning the concept of sharing and taking turns, sort of. Every time you have something she wants, particularly beverages with straws, she's all about sharing. All about sharing. Daddy share, mommy share, Ellie turn drink. This has become particularly evident in what has become a nightly ritual uh, at dinner time, where we all sit down, eating our food, and when she decides she's had enough, she says, all done, and, and pushes away from the table, and we clean her up, and and get her down, and without fail, for like the last two weeks at least, she immediately gets off her chair, walks over to my chair, climbs up in my lap, sits down, and starts grabbing my utensils and going after my food, which is usually the exact same thing she's just finished eating. And I don't have a problem with this. I'm happy to share my food with her. But what worries me is, is her, her boldness and the motivation behind which she just so boldly climbs up into my lap. And the reason that worries me is because of the reaction that I get when I say no. I wish I could say her response was, oh, that's okay, Father. Thank you for the incredible meal that you've already given me. Thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you that you're going to soon put me into bed, and I won't fuss at all because I'm grateful for my soft, warm bed that is safe so I can sleep and be rested and have a strong immune system. 
Yeah, you all know that's not how she reacts when I say no. But here's the question that's running through my mind. Did she plop in my lap and start taking my food because she thinks I'm good and that I love her? Or because she thinks she's good and she deserves that food? The action is the same, but it's a matter of whether she's acting out of a place of entitlement or a place of humble gratitude. And to me as her father, that makes a really big difference because I celebrate and I encourage humble gratitude, but I will discipline entitlement. Humble gratitude makes me feel appreciated. Entitlement makes me feel disrespected and not loved for me, for simply being her father. And I would argue that God is the same way about his children, whom Romans calls in this passage, children of the promise. That's a word you'll see through here, and I'm going to reference a lot. So I want to explore with you today two marks of children of the promise, which I hope and pray is all of you in this room. The first mark of children of the promise is that they are called by God's will. In this passage in Romans, Paul is anticipating that Jews are hearing the message of Jesus, bringing salvation to the people, all people, Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles are going, wait a minute, Paul, we're Israelites. We're the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. We have the adoption, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, all these things in verse 5 of Romans 9. Those are given to us by our bloodline, by the simple fact that Abraham is our father. We don't have to do anything extra to get those. We're the chosen people of God. What do you mean the Messiah comes for the Gentiles also? He's our Messiah. And Paul responds, so you want, you want to brag about bloodline, huh? Let's look at bloodline for just a minute. Um, there's a genealogy I've put up here. Sorry if it's a little hard to read. It's the biggest I could get it. Um, but it's basically the genealogy of Abraham through Jacob and Jacob's children. So it all starts in Genesis 12, where Abraham is first calling God, sorry, Abraham is first called by God to be a blessing to the nations, to be set apart from God, from, for God. But we don't see the establishment of a covenant relationship that the Jews keep claiming is theirs through being children of Abraham until Genesis 17. So we're going to turn to Genesis 17. Starting in verse 1. So here's the covenant establishment. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And Abraham, and God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, 
you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And then uh, skip over to verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her by her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Remember, Ishmael is the son that Abraham had with Hagar, um, Sarah's handmaiden. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So Abraham says, Okay, God, you're establishing this covenant through me. I'm going to bear a son. Through Sarah, you say all this stuff is going to happen, but we've already taken care of that. You see, we, 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 already, we already realized that Sarah couldn't have children, so we figured it out on our own, and, and we had a son named Ishmael, so how about him? How about you bless him, and that be the guy through whom you have the line? And God goes, no, <laughs> that's not the way it's going to be. I have a plan. I have a way that this is going to happen. So Sarah eventually bears Isaac who is the child of the promise and has to be the result of God's hand because this is a twice impossible pregnancy. When Sarah was of the age to conceive and give birth, she was barren her whole life. And now she's well past that age. There's no, I mean, there's no way that she could have a child on two different accounts. So this has to be the work of God. So then Isaac grows up, marries Rebecca. Rebecca conceives twins, who you see Paul referring to back in Romans. Oh, man, I lost my bookmark. There it is. Starting in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So Esau was the firstborn, just like Ishmael. Esau technically earned the right of being in the lineage of the children of God by being the firstborn. But God defied proper human convention and and the rights of the firstborn because his purpose was to call and to use Jacob, and it says in there, in order that his purpose, God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, in order to show through lineage that this can only be the work of God and not the conjuring of man. I'm going to use Jacob. And sure enough, Esau gave up his birthright to Jacob for a measly bowl of stew. We find out later in Genesis 17. So Jacob must have had potential, right? I mean, surely, okay, Abraham, whatever, Isaac, whatever. But surely Jacob had potential, right? Don't get me started on Jacob. He was an absolute train wreck. His name in Hebrew means the deceiver. I actually really liked that name for a boy when we were thinking of names before we knew what our second child was going to be. And, and then I remembered his name, meaning the deceiver, and I'm like, you know what? I just don't want to set myself up for parental failure like that. <laughs> like, why, why battle? Let's name him something that means like the blessing or the obedient one or I don't know. We'll see. No offense to anyone named Jacob in here, but. So Jacob connives 
and takes Esau's birthright by trading it for a bowl of stew with the help of his mother, Rebecca, lies to his father, Isaac, when he's old and blind, tricks him into bestowing Esau's blessing. Remember, he puts animal skin on himself and then cooks a meal like Esau would, tricks his father, Isaac, into blessing him, giving him the birthright to pass down. And then, after this, when he goes out to find a wife... He falls in love with hot Rachel and works a bunch to marry her and then gets tricked into marrying her visually less blessed sister on that night. And then eventually gets his hot sister, gets her hot sister as well, but treats Leah terribly all the way through their marriage. And she's done nothing wrong. In fact, she's the one that bears children first and very successfully while Rachel deals with barrenness. And yet Jacob does not treat her with dignity and respect and love. And then just look at the mess in the bottom right down here. From Jacob, you have Leah and Rachel, Rachel and Zilpah and Bilhah. And there's this really weird, like, battle between these four women. No, you sleep with this one and bear children. No, you sleep with this one. Oh, now I can have kids. And it's just this absolute mess. And if you look at the names of the children of that mess of whatever was going on in that marriage, those are the 12 tribes of Israel. All those sons in there, that mess of nastiness and and all of that. And if you look at the line of Leah, it's really interesting. Because who are Leah's sons? Levi. From the Levites, who are the ones who are the caretakers of the tabernacle. Can get closer to God than anyone else except basically the high priest, the line of Aaron. And Judah, the line of the kings. The one David comes from. The line Jesus comes from. The two most important tribes of Israel come from the unloved woman, Leah, whom Jacob would have never married if he had his way. God wrestled and wrangled this lineage into existence by his power for his purposes. See, Paul is drawing a line here regarding salvation between the Israelites' claim to being children of Abraham and what Paul calls children of the promise, making a distinction between being a bloodline child of Abraham and being a child of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring. Because the Jews are just arguing that they're in by heritage. Automatically, if you're born a Jew, you're in. You have the blessings, you have the covenants, you have everything, it totally belongs to you. But Paul is saying, hey, look, you guys boast in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as if that's something to be proud of. And yet they themselves had nothing to boast about. Look at them. Their lives are a mess. Romans 9, verse 6 says, in in spite of the fact that this lineage is a mess, verse 6 says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. If I can phrase it another way, children of Abraham are not inherently covenant keepers. But covenant keepers are inherently children of Abraham. Therefore, children of the promise of God's redemption. 
And if this were not the case, Muslims would have the right to claim to be children of God because Islam starts from the line of Ishmael, who is a child of Abraham. Islam can claim to be children of Abraham. And Esau, the firstborn of Isaac, would be a child of the promise as well, and therefore all of his offspring, which if you can... Oh, it's not there. It's okay. If you can see, uh, his children are Edomites and Amalekites. If you know your Old Testament, those are people who are attacking Israelites and are a thorn in their side for a long time, and eventually God destroys the Amalekites and makes the Edomites so insignificant they're almost nothing. But technically, they can all claim to be children of Abraham as well. So clearly, it's not about bloodline. In other words, don't be so high and mighty just because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. John the Baptist has some choice words to also answer this Jewish claim Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. This is John the Baptist. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What do Abraham and a pile of rocks have in common? They're both created. In the end, they're helpless without the initiating work of God, saving them, sanctifying them, breathing life and existence into them. This is the sovereign work of God from beginning to end. When the Jews are boasting about their lineage through Abraham, the only thing they're actually boasting in is the sovereignty of God, which they had absolutely zero influence in. It's silly, right? Then why do we mostly affluent middle-class Americans harbor the same types of judgments against those less affluent or fortunate than us? Oh, that guy is just lazy. He needs to get his act together, get off drugs, get a real job, stop looking for government handouts. That girl needs to stop sleeping around and respect herself more. Girl, wash your face. Millennials are just lazy and addicted to entertainment and want free stuff. I worked hard for my money, and they should too. When I was a kid, we walked to school both, wa both ways uphill in the snow. You get where that's going. Now, I'm not diminishing hard work and determination. Absolutely, let's be people of character. Let's be people of good moral standing. Let's persevere. Let's work hard. Absolutely. But when we boast in ourselves because of our circumstances, the problem is who gets the glory? When the Jews claim Abraham as their father, they're not boasting in Abraham. They're actually boasting in their own position because of them being children of Abraham. The operative word there is, I am a child of Abraham. They should be on their knees crying out, thank you, God, that in your divine will and providence, you chose a broken people to bless, to make a covenant with us, to be a light and a hope to the nations, to give us an incredible, gorgeous land full of milk and honey, to give us the Messiah. The Messiah is through the lineage of Jews, for Jews and the rest of the world, but first for Jews. A means of atoning for sin and being able to be in the presence of God for eternity. But no, instead the words out of the mouths of the Israelites is God chose me. I deserve this. God owes me this because I am his child. 
And when we look on others with this same attitude, we commit the same sin as the Israelites, stealing the glory of God for ourselves. And this is why it's so important that we understand that children of the promise are called by God's will, not by their own. There's a humility and there's a posture of gratitude that should accompany the reality that God called me by his will, by his action, by his initiation for his purpose. I am not my own. It removes all pretense for boasting. We are merely the gracious recipients of God's benevolence. You need to be able to take credit for your own beating heart before you can take credit for any other good thing in your life. There's a beautiful example of this in one of my favorite passages of scripture, Ezekiel 36, after Israel has rebelled for, I don't know, probably the hundredth time. Starting in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And then verse 32, just to put another point on it. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. You didn't catch it yet. Why does God do all of this? For his sake for his glory, for his name, for his purposes. That his name would be renowned, feared, and worshipped among the nations. The Israelites just happened to be the lucky people that God chose to show off his glory, to be his people. That he can redeem broken things and make them new, and that he is a good father that is worth following and obeying. But this isn't the only reason he did this. Look back at verse 28. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. God didn't just want to make creation and then sit back and observe. He wants to be in relationship with his creation. We saw the same language back in Genesis 17 in the covenant God made with Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's not just that you will recognize that he is God off there in the distance somewhere floating in space and that he, maybe he made things at one point, but now he's distant. He's not just the God. He's your God by choice. The one you love and long to obey, the one you actually know and who actually knows you. You will be his people, not just products of creation, but his friends. Walking in the garden together in the cool of the day like Adam and Eve did with God in the beginning before the fall. 
But relationships have ground rules. Notice God doesn't say that he's going to do all these things in Ezekiel, and the Israelites can just carry on however they want. Verse 27 of Ezekiel 36, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There are ground rules. Which brings me to the second mark of a children of the promise. They are called by God's will, and they answer that call on God's terms. So imagine my wife was trying to get a hold of me, So she calls me on my smartphone, and I see it ringing, and instead of swiping and answering, I open my email app, and I sit there and I just stare at my email app. I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting. Call goes to voicemail. She tries again. I know you're trying to get a hold of me. I'm sitting here in my email app. Do the same thing. Keep missing her. And then I get mad at her because I'm opening my email I'm ready to communicate, but she's not communicating to me in the way I want her to. It's the same device, right? It doesn't matter how I do it. It's the same device. Who has control over the method of communication? The one who initiates, not the one who answers. And just as we went over previously how God is the one who calls by his will, for his purpose, he is the initiator. I could sit and stare at this phone all day long and say, Megan, call me. All I want. But it's not going to happen unless she picks up the phone and dials my number by her will. Let's be honest. Nobody knows anybody's numbers anymore. I just clicked the name. (laughs) In the same way, when she calls, I have to answer by the same means by which she called. I'm never going to get a hold of her opening my email when my phone is ringing. God has been calling his people since the beginning of creation. Remember back in Genesis 17, when when God calls Abraham, he says he's going to make a people for himself. He gives them these marks of a covenant relationship. And Paul in Romans 9 is reminding the Israelites that those things, yeah, they are yours to have. We go back to 9, starting in, we'll start in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, just to clarify, you can't actually give up your salvation for someone else, but Paul's just using this to express how deeply he longs for his Israelite brothers and sisters to understand this. He's saying, you guys are so close You've already been given almost everything. You just, you're missing one little thing. I would do anything if you guys could just turn that one little switch and understand everything that has already been given to you. Verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. The Messiah is for the Jews. Who is God overall, blessed forever? Amen. God has handed the Israelites everything on a silver platter. In fact, God has been doing this over and over and over and over throughout all of the Old Testament, constantly re-dishing everything up. They throw on the ground. Here you go. Here it is again. Here it is again. Here it is again. 
And here's the problem, though, is because when we look back at the Old Testament, especially in hindsight, especially not being mostly from Jewish heritage, we can look at the Old Testament and think that God is some kind of egomaniac control freak who's hell-bent on destroying people and making people suffer and sacrificing animals and just pouring out a whole lot of blood and burning things. And it's, it's just not true. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, this is just one example. They're, they're all over. We could spend an hour going through just the examples of covenant-making that God has with his people. Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, it's everywhere. But let's just read this one because it's the shortest one. You're welcome. Jeremiah seven twenty two. For in the day that I, that is God, brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. I didn't give you a bunch of rules and regulations when I brought you out of Egypt. That's what he's saying. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. So did God bring Israelites out of Egypt to shackle them to some sort of legal system of tabernacles and laws and sacrifices? No. The law was never about following the rules. God wasn't a legalist in the Old Testament and then suddenly is all about grace and mercy and you don't have to follow the law anymore in the New Testament. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus wasn't some sort of change of heart for God. He has always been the heart of God. I will be your God. You will be my people. We will have relationship and your life will flourish as a result. That's been the message of God to humanity from the very beginning. That's why the Garden of Eden was good. That's why it wasn't full of thorns. That's why it was already good. The giving of the law was simply meant to reveal their sin and provide a means to deal with it so that relationship with the perfect, holy God would be possible and his glory wouldn't consume them. And from the beginning, there has always been hope of the coming Messiah who will once and for all atone for sin, fulfill the law, and make that relationship to God eternal. This isn't new information. The Israelites have been looking forward to the Messiah for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It's just that when he showed up, when God dialed and called them on the phone, if you will, it wasn't the call they were expecting, and they wanted to answer in a different way. Jesus was not the phone call they were looking for. Turn to John chapter 10, starting in verse 24. John 10, 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, that's Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Everything the creator of the universe has to offer has already been offered freely to the Israelites. Including the claim to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
And yet, as we see all throughout Scripture, the Jews are rejecting the Messiah. They want a Messiah who's going to come as a conquering king like David, or who's going to be regal, something to be proud of like Solomon, somebody whose face is worth printing on money, someone who will drive out the Roman occupation, come in power, and show people that the Jews are not to be messed with, not a servant king who is lowly of stature and dies on a cross. Jesus has come to be the fulfillment of the birthright God gave through his covenant with Abraham, and they are rejecting him. Because he didn't look like they wanted. He didn't act like they wanted. And this is where verse 5 in Romans 9 becomes so critically important, this incredible Christological statement that any Jew would have, again, picked up stones and probably threatened to stone Paul for saying, just like they threatened to stone Jesus. Verse 5, to the Israelites belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the problem is rejecting Jesus as, as the Messiah is not just rejecting a gift. I, no, no, thanks, God. I, I've got other things going. I don't need the Messiah. The problem is Jesus is God. When you reject the Messiah, you reject, reject the Creator God Himself. God, we love being children of Abraham for all the blessings, the benefits, the protections. But we don't want to be in relationship with you. We just want your stuff. We like the call. We just want to answer it a different way. They're saying we want protection without submission. We want blessing without obedience. We want status without humility. We want glory without repentance. I don't want to change. I just want all the benefit. How often do we do the same? Are you a Christian because you hope church will make your children turn out well? Maybe they'll stay off drugs. Are you in it for the fire insurance? Hell scares you to death and you want to avoid it. Does it give you respectability to be a deacon or an elder or have some sort of status in the church? Or donate enough money to have a, name build, a, a building named after you? Does coming to church make you feel clean, like you had a little bit of spiritual shower, and, and now I can go follow my heart and live like I want the rest of the week, as long as I got cleaned and showered and said enough Hail Marys on Sunday? Are you just wanting membership in a club or a relationship with a loving father? This isn't like Costco. You don't just swipe your card and, and get in and then do whatever you want in here. Imagine if I flashed my wedding ring at my wife when I walked in the house like a Costco card. And then go about my business and completely ignore her. This ring isn't so I can have access to her money and have a joint bank account. Or have access to her house. Or have access to a, a joint filing tax break. Or whatever other marital benefits you can think of. This is a seal of a covenant that we have entered in together equally. This is, I love you. I want what's best for you. I will sacrifice everything for you, and you will do the same for me. This relationship is a two-way street. If you're not here this morning because you want more of God and to be in relationship with Him, you're here for the wrong reason. And I'm really glad you're here. Because my hope and prayer is that the longer you're here, the more you fall in love with the true God, the more you want Him and not just His stuff. But we are children of God on God's terms, not on our interpretation of his terms. 
And it's not a, man's answer, a matter of simply answering God's call once or 20 years ago, saying the prayer at a youth rally or however the Lord captured your heart. Are you living on his terms today? Are you living like Christ paid your debt today? Are you living like a child obedient to your heavenly father today? Or are you just in the Christian club? Do you need Jesus to be your saver from your sin yesterday, today, and the ones you're going to commit tomorrow? Or are you all squared away? You got everything under control. I want to close with Psalm 50. And hopefully this all makes sense because I was making this change last night at 10 p.m. Because I was reading my Bible and read this psalm and went, you know what? That's, that's it. That's way better than whatever I had before. Psalm 50, starting in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. You see a thief and you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Listen, verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Everything good in your life. Have you achieved that on your own? By your bootstraps, blood, sweat, and tears? Or are you willing to acknowledge that it's all a gracious gift of God? Is God lucky to have you on his team as a model Christian? Or are you full of thankful humility that he chose you despite yourself? Have you paved your own path of salvation with church attendance and good Christian morals? Or are you constantly, daily aware of your need for the saving, sanctifying power of Jesus? Let's be children of the promise who understand that it's God who calls us. And the only answer is Jesus.